Hi, welcome to the Culture Hacker Podcast. Uh, thanks so much for checking in, guys. Uh, I'm very excited today. We've got a couple of great guests for you. Uh, first up, I got Michelle Crosby coming in. She's the principal at Crosby Consulting, but she was also previously the EVP and CHRO for FRHI Hotels and Resorts. Uh, they're overseeing the Fairmont brands, Raffles brand, and Swiss Hotel. And she's got some fantastic insights to, to share with us. And we're going to talk about this whole idea and the importance of culture and the role of human resources. Then I've got Michael Levy uh, stopping by. He's going to call in and uh, tell us all about recognition. He's the CEO of Online Rewards, and he's going to talk a little bit about how you can improve your recognition process. But first, uh, I got a couple of thoughts, uh, and again, I think I'm going to start talking about Uber. I know everybody else is. You're probably sick of it by now, but it seems for the last couple of months they've been in the news everywhere, probably for all the wrong reasons. Uh, every article seems to be suggesting, listen, there's really something wrong with their culture. It's broken, and there must be change. Now, without getting into all the details, you've probably read and heard them, but uh, we have Susan Fowler out here, the former engineer. She's claiming that Uber has this culture of sexual harassment supported by a very non-responsive HR. Uh, as I said, I don't want to get into all the details, but it just seems that it's just too easy to blame human resources for culture. You know what? The, the fact of the matter is, and I want to make this really clear, um, the culture is no longer just an HR thing. It's the responsibility of every owner, executive, and manager in the company. So just to throw human resources under the bus in a situation like this seems really, really short-sighted. Now on the plus side, listen, uh, the CEO Travis Kalanick has come out. He admits he needs to grow up and he's got to get some leadership help. Well, good on you, Travis. Um, but I'll also tell you that his thoughts and his sentiments could apply to managers in many, many companies today, especially when it comes to their leadership responsibilities and how they take care of their staff. Listen, it's time for many businesses and executives to grow up. Understand that your company culture or the collective mindsets of your people is a direct reflection of you and how you treat those people and what you're doing to create the sort of experience that keeps them posted. The question is not, do you have a culture? The question today is, do you have a culture that keeps your staff, customers, and shareholders raving about you? And unfortunately, many companies are found wanting. There's obviously something wrong in, inside of Uber, uh, but that's also the case for so many companies today. And when it comes to taking care of your staff, just remember this, if you're not gonna take care of them, someone else will. I've been quoted as saying this many times before, but let's get real. This whole talent war thing is over. Talent one, take care of your people and focus on creating a better experience for them. One that respects them, one that's inclusive, one that's transparent, and then just maybe many of these problems that seem to end up in the news will go away. Now, to help us think about this whole employee experience and company culture, my next guest, uh, who I think is a true expert and a great friend, be right back there with Michelle Crosby. Cheers. So I'm very excited right now on our Culture Hacker podcast to bring in Michelle Crosby. And here is a, a true woman of the world uh, who's just done some amazing things in terms of human resources. She's been the SVP of human resources for Starwood Hotels and the Resorts, Chief Talent Officer for 24-Hour Fitness, Head of HR for Bridgewater Associate, one of the largest hedge funds in the world, and most recently, the Executive Vice President and Chief Human Resource Officer for FRH Hotels, which has such luxury brands as Fairmont, Raffles, Swiss Hotels. This lady is truly about customer experience and service. Michelle Crosby, welcome to Culture Hacker. How are you today? I'm great, Shane. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, listen, I'm really excited to get into it. I know this is a, a, a good passion point for you, so let's get right into it. Let's talk about culture. Why has it become such 
an important part of any business in any industry today. Why do you think it's now the number one thing that executives are thinking about? Well, I'll tell you, Shane, uh, you referenced some of my experiences. And, you know, I've spent about half my career in consulting and about half in corporate roles. In fact, I've worked in six different companies in my professional career, plus a few more before that in high school, college, and the like. Uh, And I've been heads of human resources for four of them. And in my experience, I've consulted with literally dozens of organizations from marquee Fortune 100 kinds of companies to more mid-scale, smaller organizations, public and private across a range of industries. And the reality is that um, the role of culture and its impact on both the business itself, on the customer experience that that business is able to create, and on the people that work inside that business, you know, just can't be underestimated. You know, I think that's really why executives are starting to understand, um, in, as Peter Drucker said in what's become a, a bit of a truism, that, that culture eats strategy for breakfast uh, because it is so core to what an organization is, uh, how it ticks, um, what it values, who it attracts, who it, uh, who it rejects, that it, it is so fundamental to making a business successful that uh, even though it's a little bit soft and a little hard for some people to understand, the realization is we, we have to wrap our arms around it. So I love that. And again, you've, you've highlighted something. It is a little soft. And I think these are one of the things that uh, mainly executives do struggle with a little bit. So, so tell me about how do you talk to an executive who's really not sure about the place that culture plays in the organization? There isn't this necessary easy ROI, though we're seeing some amazing case studies and research, certainly telling us that the employee experience is driving customer experience. But in your history and capacity, tell me, how do you talk to that manager? Because a lot of our HR managers and executives out there run into this wall where someone in the organization just doesn't get it. How do you approach that? Well, uh, what I've often uh, told my clients is, um, look, you've got a culture whether you want one or not. <laughs> and you may not even realize you have a culture, and you may not realize what it is, but you still have one. Because culture is simply the collection of behaviors and systems and symbols that describe what's important here, uh, how we work, what we value, what we reward, the stories that we tell ourselves and tell each other. It's the way that we do things around here. So everyone has a culture. It may not be the culture that they want or a culture that's serving them well, but they still have one. And some other, some organizations have been really thoughtful and planful in how they create their culture. Others just sort of haphazard their way into them. Uh, and I have seen the good, the bad, and the ugly in this. Um, as I said before, culture truly permeates everything that happens in an organization. And I've been a part of some amazing cultures, uh, and I've also been in some that are pretty toxic. <laughs> uh, some, some can be very people-centric. Some are more process-driven. Some are innovation-focused. Some are sales-oriented. Some are financially driven. Some are customer-focused. Some are competitive and combative. Some are all about who's the smartest person in the room. Others are political, and some are not. But whether you realize it, you recognize it, or you even understand it, those forces are impacting your business today. And so coming to terms with the culture that you have and the culture that you want, and knowing that there are actually things that you can do to move your culture from one place to another, I think is every leader's job. You know, one of the pieces that you got, you've worked for these amazing organizations, which obviously have a strong customer or guest focus. So 
So tell me and sort of talk to our listeners, how does the internal culture, that employee experience, everything that you've just mentioned, impact what's happening with the customer guest today? Well, I think it, 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 um, it reflects on it at every single touch point, right? The customer experience is a reflection of what's happening with inside the organization, whether the organization intends that or wants that or not. So, you know, I was recently part of a truly great service organization. Um, the internal culture was genuinely collaborative, collegial, completely apolitical. Honestly, I'd never seen anything like this uh, in my life. Um, and that culture reflected in to the customer experience in truly wonderful ways. The way that people were treated inside that organization were how they treated their customers, their guests, everyone that they interacted with, partners, all external contacts, because that's just the way that you behave there. Um, in, in a different organization, also a service organization that I was a part of, financial performance was such a strong driver of that culture. It was the reason to be in that organization. And unfortunately, that also reflected on the customer experience. Uh, things were cut. Services were cut. Expenses were cut. Training was cut. Things were cut in order to ensure the bottom line hit the right number. But the customer experience suffered in that culture that was so financially driven. I was in a third organization that was all about sales. It was all about getting the sale and getting the customer. What we did with that customer once we had them didn't, in fact, seem to matter at all. There wasn't really any focus or attention given to service or customer retention. It was all just about close the deal. So those are just three examples of how what you reap on the inside is what you sow on the outside in your customer experience. And let's face it, how an employee turns up to work, and you know, for us, we talk a lot about culture is about the mindset and attitude of someone when they walk in to work every day. And that obviously then uh, affects their behaviors, the words, and everything that they use. But how an employee turns up to work, if you agree with me, is absolutely going to affect how they take care of the customer that day. You can't get around it. We're human beings and we are a product of our mindset and attitude. Oh, absolutely, Shane. In fact, the amount of time that I have spent in the course of my career collecting data and making the argument that how people feel about working in their jobs is directly correlated, a causal relationship to how they treat their customers every day, which is again directly related, directly correlated to the financial performance of the business, absolutely blows my mind. Because I think it's such an obvious concept, I don't know why you would need to persuade anyone of that. Of course, if, if I'm happy, excited, and ready to get out of bed and go to work and do my very best because I feel respected and well-treated and valued in my role, of course I'm going to take care of uh, the people that I interact with, my internal customers, my external customers, my teammates, uh, my boss. And if I'm treated the opposite, how could you possibly think that I'm going to do a great job of taking care of other people? It is just, for me, such a basic human truth. It is so patently obvious. I don't know why it has taken us, at least in American industry, you know, 25, 30 years to figure this out. It seems so obvious on its face. Now, I think that obvious element, and as I said, if we're talking to sort of our H human resource peers out of there, every human resource manager I know, they'll be nodding their head, but you see it's everyone else. 
and it's everyone else in an executive and a management team. And this is the piece that kind of gets me is that it is about customer experience, this investment in your employees, and that this cannot be just an HR thing. And I think if it's just an HR thing, a responsibility of one department, one person, I think that's where we struggle and fail. So tell me, you know, as this human uh, resource consultant expert and with your amazing experience, you know, how do we go beyond just ourselves and our own department? How do we get these other executives in involved? And who do you think is critical in these large organizations or small to be on board with culture? Well, I, again, I, I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, HR does not carry the torch on culture. HR does not carry the torch on people development. Uh, it is, and I have told other leaders, it is not my job to develop your team. It's your job as a leader to develop your team. It's my job to help give you the tools and the systems and the programs and the processes to help get that done. But at the end of the day, you as the leader of a team of people, you own that team's engagement. You have to own that team's engagement. You know, if you're working in an organization as I have with 120,000 people in 80 different countries around the world, how can I or anyone on my human resources team possibly be responsible for driving the day-to-day work-life experience of those 120,000 people? That's a, it's a ridiculous concept. The, the person that drives their experience of what it's like to work within that company, the most important influence on that is their immediate supervisor. No matter what level of the organization they are in, the way that they will feel about going to work every morning is going to be a reflection of that person because they're the one that is creating their day-to-day reality. Now, of course, they're doing that within a broader context, right? They're, they're doing with that, that within a broader organizational cultural frame. But nonetheless, the role of leaders at every single level, they're the ones that create culture. They're the ones that create engagement. They're the ones that create the employee experience. They're the ones that make an individual decide, is this a company that I'm loyal to and want to stay with and do my best for, or is it time for me to go get another job? So culture needs to be owned by leaders at absolutely every level, and I think human resources has to play a role as a facilitator of that process, but not as the owner of that process. I love the two elements that you're bringing together because I think you've captured perfectly what the human resource role is. I love the idea of the conductor, the facilitator. I'm going to talk about that in a moment, but let's go back to these frontline managers honestly manages all the way up through the organization. How do you approach that manager, that executive, because I know you've run into that before, that just doesn't quite get it? How, How do you overcome that challenge of them accepting this role and playing the part and not just saying it's human resources role? Well, you know, that's a, that's a very good question and one I've certainly wrestled with um, many different times. And I like to think I'm a relatively persuasive person <laughs> and uh, can make the case for, for why you should care about this people stuff. And I've done that, I think, uh, effectively from time to time. But honestly, there are some leaders that just aren't ever going to get there. Like, they just aren't. And in fact, as I was thinking about what are the greatest obstacles to creating a great culture, it can be that. Those leaders who just just don't get it, right, who are not with the program. 
And I think that human resources has a really tough task if you don't have some friends at the top that really are prepared to champion this and make changes where leaders are not um, are not on the bus, so to speak, who are not really understanding the role that they must play in order to create an effective organization. And so as I think about some of those um, different different difficult chapters that I've had to personally grapple with, you know, they really, they fall into all of those different categories. I mean, it is run the gamut from me, you know, one-on-one trying to persuade and influence, show, pitch, uh, tell the story of why people matter, right? Um, It is also included having some really important senior level uh, sponsors and champions who will, from more of a position of power than I've ever had in human resources because let's be honest, we sit a bit to the side and and play an influencing role rather than a hold the strings of power role. And so sometimes, you know, having your friends that do have that power and are willing to exercise it and, you know, sometimes make an example of people who are not living the values of the organization, who are not treating people the way that they uh, deserve to be treated, become some of the best uh, kind of storytelling, this really is who we are as an organization mechanisms that exist out there. Um, and, you know, some of it, I think, is, is education and, and data and making a case and showing the different uh, results. And so one of the benefits that I've found in working in multi-unit organizations, which um, almost all the ones that I've worked inside have been, is you have this unique opportunity to compare and contrast, right? You can have um, a hotel or a club that is just hitting it out of the ballpark uh, from every business metric dimension, right? Um, that's in a comparable market, in a comparable facility, uh, to one that is just floundering. And so when you start digging underneath that and looking at the whys of that, the role of the leader and the role of the culture and environment that that leader is creating is almost always at the core of it. You know, you can talk to people who've come in after a bad leader, and they can tell you how hard they have had to work to turn an organization around. And, you know, the the stories of the role of leadership in in driving business success from the inside out, from the people first, um, just exist over and over again. And so using those as case studies and really showing the example of what a great leader can do when they pull all those different kinds of people levers the right way – um, can help you make your case. I love it. You know, one of the questions I get asked all the time is like, all right, I've, uh, uh, I'm pitching or I'm presenting to my executive team, the ownership group, et cetera. What are the key elements to focus in on? You've just sort of alluded to sort of business cases, examples and that, that there has been an important element of any presentation. Is there a company out there that you admire that you think uh, really gives that case a kind of real shot in the arm? Anyone that you think of off the top of your head? Well, I like to take the ones that I've been a part of. <laughs> well, of course, that's natural. <laughs> uh, and, you know, because I, I, am, I approach the world as a researcher, I'm an industrial organizational psychologist by background and training. You know, I think that the importance of using data uh, to make a case as a human resources professional um, has, is really important and has not been well leveraged by our profession, right? So, so being able to tell a story from data, whether it's from engagement engagement data or turnover data or looking at the relationship between um, people related
related metrics and business metrics that that matter to our our line clients um, is really really important. And using case studies, as I was saying, to illustrate, you know, here's an example of an amazing turnaround situation, and what are all the factors uh, that that went into that. But the power of that kind of storytelling, right? That that's not just helpful if you're trying to make a case um, to a leader about a subject like engagement. You know, the power of storytelling is really the power of culture building because storytelling is such a fundamental human need, right? It's like the most basic way that human beings have ever communicated with each other is through stories. And, you know, we tell our children stories of fables that have, you know, a moral to the story, hoping that they will learn something from those lessons of things that have gone on before. And so really great organizations have, you know, a great history of of storytelling. And, you know, so when I think about organizations that really stand out in that regard, I think Nordstrom, for example, you know, that they're, they just are legendary in their telling of stories about, you know, things they've accepted on a return, taking back tires when obviously Nordstrom (laughs) doesn't even sell tires and all kinds of crazy stories like that, that exemplify kind of who they are as a culture, the values that they have, the importance of putting the customer first. Fantastic. Okay, so let's kind of flip over now to the that HR facilitator, that conductor type role. If you're talking to sort of our HR sort of peers and out there and talking to them and said, where do you start with the culture? What are the mechanisms that you really think as an HR person who's sitting there today and going, all right, I, I know my culture isn't what I want it to be. It's not delivering the results that everybody wants. Where do I begin in terms of looking at certain mechanisms and which mechanisms do you think are absolutely critical to start to shift this mindset of how people feel about coming to work? Well, I think first and foremost, it has to start with um, agreement and clarity at the senior most level about what the culture should be, where you want to be. Now, not where you are. You need to know that too. But more impo- more importantly, or just as importantly, you need this picture of what great would look like in your organization. Because like anything else, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there, right? You have to know and have agreement from the people whose opinions matter on this is what we're trying to create. And then once you have those stakes in the ground, you know, they, they really become the, the touchstone, the checkpoint for are we doing this right? Because, you know, you also see in organizations who profess to have a certain kind of culture. For, for example, I worked in one early on in my career that it was supposed to be a collegial, team-oriented, collaborative culture, and we would say those words. Um, and I think it was largely intended to be true. But then we had systems that got in the way. In this particular case, we had a compensation structure that put, was at odds with that kind of collegiality, right, that, that incented individual contribution rather than team performance. So you have to know where you're trying to go, and then you have to hold up everything that you do within the organization to see if it is helping that or is it hindering that. Um, and And then to me, some of the most fundamental pieces are uh, performance management is is sort of um, maybe not very much fun and not the most sexy thing that we do, but when done well is really not about an HR administrative process, but is around aligning an organization around clear goals and objectives that cascade down 
through the organization. And what people are rewarded for, including the competencies, the values, the behaviors that um, are rewarded and recognized versus um, the ones that we want to see extinguished, sends a very powerful message within the organization. Hooking people's behavior to their compensation does drive change. That's just a reality. So let's jump in. I, I love it. Performance management. It, it, just the name performance management, I, I think, is it limits what performance should be all about. Uh, one of the pieces that I, I find myself talking about is, you know what, if we're just managing performance, we're really not utilizing the talents and bringing to life the true capabilities. So I talk a lot about, you know, it's an empowerment and enablement. We've got to have a responsibility to bring those to life. How do you elevate performance within an organization. How can, as I said, as an HR practitioner, think about those things? We've, we've got the alignment with compensation. I think that's a great first step. But just from the whole idea of how do you enable and empower people effectively? Because I really think that really has a big impact on mindset. No, I think I think you're exactly right, and I think the term performance management is somewhat unfortunate and carries a lot of baggage around with it. So if if we instead think about we're trying to drive organizational excellence within our organization, right? That meaning performance at every level, the individual's performance, the team's performance, the business unit's performance, the company's performance. What do we need to do to make that happen? Well, I think we have to have clarity around goals. What 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 are we trying to accomplish, and how are we going to get there? And the thing that organizations struggle with the most is what, not what to do, it's what not to do. Because there's so, such a huge myriad of things that need to be done. It's too easy to get lost in the thousands of little pieces and not focus on the one or two or three really big things. So clarity around goals is really important. Um, so that's number one. Uh, number two, that, that needs to cascade down through the organization. I need to have my team aligned with me as a leader so we're all rowing in the same direction. Three, we need to have um, the ability to give people the space, the tools, the latitude they need to go and get their job done, right? Not supervising, micromanaging everything they do every single day, but um, empowering them. And again, that's a word that comes with a lot of baggage. But if you put the baggage to the side and focus on its true meaning, right, giving people the power to act in a way that they know their jobs need to be done, you know, that's driving performance. And then I think I think um, accountability, again, in many cultures is really the gap, right? We, we say we want all these things, but if, some, if someone doesn't deliver, if a team doesn't deliver, is there a consequence to that? And I don't mean that to sound, you know, um, negative, but the reality is if it's, there needs to be a quid pro quo, right? If we're, we're arguing that you need to treat people well and give them the empowerment and the space and the skills and the tools in order to do their jobs, then they have a responsibility to deliver back to you. And you as an organization and as a leader have a right to respect that, to demand that. And then finally, I think you have to have a culture of recognition and celebration. One of my favorite quotes is, without celebration, life is just an endless series of Wednesdays. And I, <laughs> I think love it. it says it so well, right? It's yeah. that when we get into a mindset of we're endlessly pushing the ball up the hill, 
And the finish line is never in sight. In fact, it keeps always getting moved away. And there's sort of this um, minimal thanks, but now you need to do the next thing. And there are organizations that are like this, right, that are literally like a human treadmill where people just never, never stop. They never, never win. They never, ever reach the finish line. That that over time becomes exhausting. It becomes demoralizing. And so finding the big and little things to celebrate and I think those need to be work-related. I think they need to be personal. I think we need to be comfortable that the people that work in our organization are human beings. <laughs> they have lives. Things happen in those lives that are good. Uh, things happen in those lives that are, are not good. And that's all part of being human and, you know, supporting each other, celebrating um, those happy moments, supporting each other during the difficult ones. You know, that's what, that's what makes, us, makes us human. And, uh, you know, I endlessly talk to leaders who will say, yeah, we're, we're not very good at that recognition. And, and celebration thing. And so I say, so why is that? And they say, well, I don't know. Like, we're just like really busy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really? That's the best excuse you have. <laughs> and so I, I think trying to carve out space and making that a priority, it, it's probably the number one deficit I have seen in, in most cultures. Um, and in some ways, it's really not so hard, right? Like, we're not talking about a lot of money. We're not talking about, you know, a big systems implementation. We're talking about bringing a little bit of humanity to the workplace. Listen, this is some great, great stuff. And I know, uh, you know, it gets, it gets us pretty fired up. I got sort of one more question that I want to throw out because some of the things that you're describing here, you know, the accountability, having some tough conversations, recognition, uh, giving feedback, empowerment, enablement. These are, you know, as you said, in the true sense of the terms, these are very, very powerful tools. But for many different reasons, they've sort of lost their credibility maybe over the years. How is the responsibility? We've got this new workforce coming in. And I was working with a, a client the other day and it was sort of amazed. 60% of their frontline staff were Generation Zs. So they were under 21 or under, which, you know, just sort of pushed that conversation of, of our whys to the side for just a second. How do we get these next generations, which quite honestly, I think we spend way too much time complaining about, how do we set them up to really understand and be true champions of culture for our future? And where does that responsibility start? Because we all know they come into the workforce and three weeks later, they're ready to be promoted to their first manager role. Um, and while they might be able to do the job well, that experience and insight is lacking. How can organizations do a better job to set up their young people and to really grasp the critical part of culture? Yeah, no, I, I, I think they're, they're great questions and ones that everyone's grappling with. Uh, you know, I, th I think, well, I think a couple things. First of all, I think our, our humanity and our commonality makes us more the same than different. And anytime we're focused on what makes two groups of people different, we're quickly devolving into stereotypes and other less than useful kinds of characterizations of uh, us versus them. So I think it's always important to guard against that. But um, with, with regard 
to to our youth. Um, you know, they have a real energy and a, and a real excitement about some things that really matter to them, right? Like social responsibility is a very, very real thing um, to them. And we haven't really talked about this uh, so far today, but, you know, people having meaning in their work is absolutely critically important. And this is something that we've known for a very, very long time, right? Regardless of who you are or what your role is, you want to feel connected to something bigger than yourself, and you want to see your a contribution. What's your line of sight to that greater good, and how are you impacting that? And and I think that there are work-related elements of that, and I think that there are also social responsibility, whether it might be community uh, service or uh, focus on environmental green kinds of activities. And some of those areas really connect um, with this up-and-coming generation. And so rather than chafing against that's different from how we might have grown up in the workplace. Why don't we embrace that and and empower them to run with those kinds of ideas? And so this energy that they may have around, you know, I'm ready to be a manager tomorrow. Well, that may or may not be true in a formal positional sense, but aren't there ways to tap into that entrepreneur entrepreneurial spirit and energy um, in more of a project-based kind of way to, to let them uh, create impact on, on our organizations? I love it. Let, let, let's unleash all that energy that's sitting there. Michelle, absolutely fantastic. Some amazing insights. So tell us, uh, for those of you out there, Michelle Crosby, she's now shifted back into her consulting world and hat. Uh, so Michelle, if our listeners are excited, which I'm sure they are, and interested to connect with you, tell us a little bit. How do we find you? How do we get hold of you? Uh, and so that we can talk more. Well, uh, thank you for that, Shane. Yes, I am uh, back to uh, the world of consulting. Um, I am the principal of Crosby Consulting. Uh, you can find me on my website, www.crosbyconsultingllc.com, or via email, michelle at crosbyconsultingllc.com. I would love to have the opportunity to speak with you, talk about what's happening in the culture of your organization, uh, how the, the people, processes, systems, tools that you have in place Place are either helping or hindering the cultural journey that you want to be on. And uh, it's what I'm passionate about. I've enjoyed every minute of this conversation. And I thank you for the opportunity uh, to be part of your Culture Hacker podcast. Well, listen, thank you. It's a true pleasure. So please, anybody that wants to reach out to Michelle, get on to crosbyconsulting.com. Reach out to her. Again, a wealth of knowledge. Michelle, thanks very much for joining us today. We'll look forward to talking again soon. Thank you, Shane. Ciao. Hi, so welcome back to the Culture Hacker Podcast. Very excited. I got Michael Levy, CEO of Online Rewards with us. Michael, how are you doing, mate? Not too bad. How about you? Now, I know all the listeners are going out there and probably going, on. Oh, not another accent, but uh, they'll be glad to know, uh, again, not from uh, New Zealand, my exact part of the world. Michael, where are you from down in Australia? Yeah, I'm actually from Bondi Beach, Shane. Thanks oh. <laughs> very much for clarifying the difference. I don't want to confuse the two accents. Oh, very well. Good. Well done. Uh, and as I said, for the listeners out there, know that... Uh, uh, Michael can put on the best Bondi attitude and uh, accent out of anybody out there. Michael, we're going to talk recognition, your company, Online Rewards. Tell us, how did you get started and uh, why is recognition such a big deal today? Great question. I'll tell you the story, the uh, off-the-record story first, because we're off the record now, aren't we, Shane? Of course. We're always off the record and they're always the best story, so go. Wife's fascination and obsession with collecting airline miles in the early days of the airline programs 
influencing even to the point of having to eat at restaurants whose menus may not have been appealing at all, I would say, why are we actually eating at this restaurant? And here would be the comment, well, because they've got bonus American airline miles that they're offering for this particular. And I said to myself, right, what people will do for points? The, the result of that was the formation of a business with some gentlemen I'd met in Cincinnati, Ohio, Mark Slagle and John Nodal. And I said, I think there's an opportunity in this points area business. People seem to be doing all sorts of crazy things around points. We should develop some technology. I've looked at some uh, you know, industry information and seen what's out there. And there doesn't seem to be a lot beyond a number of private entities developing their own sort of programs. As a result of that, got introduced to the HR space and the application of points programs within that uh, arena. Uh, presented at a early uh, trade show, an uh, incentive show or incentive marketplace, and from that from that point, we began interacting with HR leadership on uh, reward programs and how point programs have application. So that put us on a course and a path to say, how are we going to meet the needs? of uh, that industry, uh, applying our technical knowledge and expertise and background, our understanding that uh, we as individuals, employees or consumers like this idea of points and collection of points against which we can exchange for things, and away we went in developing solutions that were being specced by our particular clients. So that's how we got uh, you know, introduced to first the concept of rewards, incentives, and points, and from that to, you know, the HR space area. Very cool. So let me ask you a question then. The idea of points, and you brought up a good point, is that is the reason that people love points is that they like to control the outcomes or the rewards that they have? And is that an important element of any recognition program, the fact that the employee has control? So, yes, it is. So the points themselves are a counting mechanism only. Right? The assumption that they necessarily translate to some things of material value are only up to the imagination of the creators of the program. I'll give you some illustrations. One client of ours will translate their points into PTO, another into payroll, another into charity donations another into logoed merchandise, another into televisions and hair dryers, another into jewelry, another into gift cards or debit cards. So the question of the points are the points provide a mechanism by which we have a means to distribute in small quantities and the frequency and then simultaneously, to your point, valid that it is, we're empowering the user to choose what to do with their points constrained only by what the particular client, in this case, uh, you know, the employer and their HR department decides should be available to exchange the points for. You know, you, you bring up a good point because so many times the recognition systems we see in companies today are really organizationally driven or manager driven, which means they're deciding the recognition or reward for the employee, often without consideration for what that employee really, really values 
or wants. So what we're talking about here is kind of flipping the psychology. So regardless of whatever recognition system you've got out there, the real caveat today is that you must be focused on what the employee wants, give them some control, and give them input onto what the outcome might look like. So it sounds like you, you, you've got this, some technology, you've got some things going. So tell me, online rewards, how does this thing work? What have you come up with? Great. So what we noticed going back to, you know, the early question of how did we get into the space in HR and what did we observe? So once we were in the HR space, we saw numbers of entities, many of them are fairly old companies. Uh, there's a terminology that the industry uses, the old school. And these are companies that grew up in the days of uh, warehouses were the key value, uh, you know, criterion, and they would fill the warehouses with stuff that their buyers would tell them that, that should be filled with. And then they'd come to the marketplace, they'd say, HR managers, I filled my warehouse with stuff, now I'm going to sell it to you. And whether they're selling jewelry with logos on it, or they're selling uh, televisions, or they're selling uh, toasters, or whatever they've filled their warehouse with, it became that what was being sold to HR was, uh, here I am vendor, I've bought all these things, and I'm gonna tell you that if you buy my things and you give them to your employees, you're gonna get a business outcome. So the vendor was defining not just what the construct should be in terms of the rewards and materially what you know the vendor had purchased on the cheap and now selling at the face value of, but it put the clients in situations where instead of asking how can we make employee reward and recognition more meaningful at your organization and consider your financial situation and how much you're willing to spend and considering the demographics and psychographics of your uh, population and considering the culture of what's been done here in the past and saying how do we grow and evolve it they continued to and i think uh, a lot of them still continue to do this which is they show up they make a song and dance presentation and they bring out a catalog and it's full of prizes and they tell the hr manager buy these things and give them to your employee instead of saying to hr how can we work within a constraint budget and with your population and with what you've done in the past and who's the executive leadership to create something around recognition that has some non-monetary components because it's not all about the monetary part, some non-monetary parts, some monetary parts, maybe some dimensional aspects of the program to ultimately deliver the most important uh, you know, deliverable, which is employees go, I like the program. I think it's fun. It's meaningful to me. I'm connected to it. If we can get the employee to that position, now we've got the ability to influence their experiences and influences, influence their perceptions of working for that organization. And now we're beginning to have an impact as opposed to what, you know, sadly many companies I still see do, tick the box saying, hey, I put a recognition program in place. I don't know if it does anything. I'm, I'm buying goods from this vendor, but tick, I put the recognition program. And, you know, I'm certainly seeing the transition and change you know, now, come 2016, 2017, where HR's waking up and they're saying, you know, we need to look at our recognition spends in a bit more of a holistic, bigger way than just whether we're sending them a catalog in the mail and choose a prize. So, so let me ask you, you know, if you're talking recognition then, you know, how does online rewards work? Is it just the manager sort of passing out? How, how does someone collect their points? How, how does that work? Because, you know, if it's just the manager, it seems like it's got a pretty narrow focus. So you're talking about a broader 
total all population uh, aspect to recognition? So I'll, that is the destination, and companies are are on some journey. All our clients are on some journey along that pathway, which is to say, we need to reduce the number of type of reward programs that the company has, in terms of different vendors, different programs, different logins, different technologies, into more of a uh, universal program whereby dimensions can be added to it. So let's be specific. Many of our companies, if we, clients before we got involved, will say, you know, I've got a service award program. You know, I'll give people every five years something. You know, we've got, a, uh, we've got a spot discretionary program where managers might have some discretionary budget and they can give some things out. We, uh, a few years ago, we put a wellness program in place. People are getting some rewards for doing their HRAs and biometrics, green and that. Some clients might then have some sales incentive programs. Some might have an end-of-year holiday program. Some might have uh, a safety program, depending upon, again, the industry type you happen to be in. So, and it becomes evident as I describe it that you say, well, I hope you've got a handbook for that because what are the employees supposed to know about all these different programs and all these different vendors and all these different places they're supposed to log into and what the rules of this one was and what the other one was? Well, we all know that that's a bit silly, really. You know, a company should have a universal program for their non-compensation-based and have the program have dimensions. So go back to the original question, which is, so how do the people get the points? Well, it's up to how the client wants to operate it. They don't have to make a universal one huge change in one big go and disrupt everything. They may choose to say, let's have a, let's have a recognition program that doesn't have any points first, non-monetary. I'd say that's a great step. You should have that, okay, because not all recognition is initiated by a manager. In fact, for some of our clients with good peer-to-peer -peer recognition programs, we might see 80% of the recognition activities be initiated by the employee. Second point. To differentiate between an informal peer-to-peer -peer recognition, thanks for helping me with this, thanks for being a part of that, great that you turned up for the charity event on the weekend, informal, non-monetary recognition. We separate and differentiate because we want to differentiate that to an employee. If an employee does something fantastic, however, they solved a patient issue and went above and beyond. They came on and addressed a safety concern. They came up with some new ideas. They pushed really hard. They delivered some business outcomes. They may have a monetary aspect, and the monetary aspect may be controlled and distributed by management, whether that be immediate managers or directors or all the way up to HR, depending on how the organization wants. So programs should have some combination of, let's say, uh, manager-initiated or employee-initiated, because that's... Uh, non-qualitative non uh, awards or qualitative awards, excuse me. Then you get to the area of quantitative awards, which might be for your years of service or for a wellness outcome or for a safety outcome or for a sales result or for a department KPI measurement, and they may be driven by data. So uh, in a given program one and a mature program, one might have dimensions that are qualitative, initiated either by employees and peers or by managers, and quantitative aspects that may be triggered by data points based on performance of either a business unit or an individual person or a team or the organization as whole 
to create a more holistic experience where you've got dimensions of the program taking place from very informal and non-monetary all the way to more structured formal awards, quarterly awards, annual awards and performance awards. So you may end up earning from a variety of buckets along the way. And, and so your, your platform or your technology allows all of those to happen, I guess, simultaneously because they don't, it doesn't rely one or the other. These recognition elements or earning it can happen pretty much 24-7, 365, correct? Correct. The events that people are being recognized for are taking place every week. They're not taking place at the end of the year. But performance outcomes might take place on a monthly or quarterly or an annual basis. So the program will have dimensional aspects, things that are happening day to day and week to week and things that are happening over longer periods of time. But the program's objective is to keep it, uh, we won't say top of mind, but keep employees aware of it and engaged and using it. And furthermore, if we are putting an overarching program in place, we provide HR with now a, a strategic management tool, a dimension for which they previously haven't had with all their separate programs, and that is, how do we assess the returns on these various programs? Who's actually using them? And can we draw correlations between money being spent in these programs with business outcomes? For if we can draw the lines between the investments being made in the programs, which HR inherently knows are good, to business outcomes, then it becomes, one, easier for HR to articulate the value proposition to uh, finance and operations leadership so they can justify the ongoing investment or convince for further investment. And two, as importantly, it turns HR from an administrative function in the organization where they are processing uh, information and data, whether that be payroll or benefits, or as the case may be, into strategic and contributing to the organization's success by saying, I can help influence employee behavior and business outcomes. And I can do that now through a tool that I can track and assess how it's being used, and I can influence its direction. And as a result of the way I influence its direction, I can influence culture of an organization. And as we all know in HR, the organization's culture and to you know, pass back to expertise like, uh, you know, you're providing, you know, Shane, is that's one of the key variables that a company can influence and a influence that, if successful, can have significant business, uh, you know, outcomes for, for the company. You know, as I said, if there's been a common theme uh, sort of on the podcast as we've talked to various sort of technology companies, it really seems that this introduction of technology by automating or at least allowing technology to take over certain parts, you're starting to get this ROI discussion going. You're actually able to quantify whether it's your investment, but more importantly, the outcome. And the outcome obviously is a healthier culture, a better mindset, a better attitude, which as we always talk about, delivers a better customer experience. So, you know, when you see that, is that really what's happening now with, with human resources and with companies like yourself bringing technology into the game, really elevating the HR role, but really having a significant impact in employee wellness, but also in the bottom line of where companies are spending their money today? Well, certainly from returns from the programs that HR had historically done, but with little data to support it, that we've had a huge impact. Two, 
that while HR wants to try and convey a certain culture on the organization, its historical means to do so was limited by the posters that it put around or the emos that it sent out. But these programs, in conjunction with the technology that supports them, allows HR to become more influential in crafting and influencing the way that technology, that culture may be perceived in the organization. And as is often the case, if you do the do, then you become what it is that you do. So in this case and instance, if we make it easy through technology to support more interesting and engaging recognition programs, then we have the capacity to better create a positive culture of recognition, which is often a desired objective and an outcome. So the technology is enabling things that HR has wanted to do for some time, and as a byproduct of them now doing it on a technology platform, they're getting the data to actually support and make the argument of the business case on and see how successful we're doing it and watch how we are actually able to change and influence business outcomes. Does a recognition program in and of itself solve a company's total uh, you know, business challenges? Well, by itself, no. But it does turn these types of programs Again, recognition and anniversary and years of service and safety programs and wellness programs, sales incentives, into more strategic tools by which we can help drive towards, you know, achieving the business outcomes. This is good stuff. So tell me, give me an example of uh, where you've had this impact. Uh, you know, give me, give me one of the partners you're working with or a business case on where you've really had an impact on culture and started to uh, really uh, make a difference. Sure. So in fairness to the client, not asking them for approval, I won't name names, but we'll call it a large retailer in the United States who we've worked with for some eight years. What have we achieved in the results? A substantial increase in their engagement scores based on the survey results pre and post the program. And I'm sure many HR managers would acknowledge and appreciate that the engagement surveys they've been doing have shown a relative lack of recognition as a uh, element that employees and management are desiring to do more. So great, recognition. We've had a significant impact in that. And then materially, how did it affect and play out to them? I think in this year, 2016, we're projected to achieve about 185 to 190,000 recognition points. What's a recognition point? That somebody sat down and spent enough time to write an accolade about another employee, and usually in fair detail in this particular program, and there's very little in actual rewards attached to this particular pro uh, this part of the program. So what's the result and the outcome? What we're saying is we're impacting engagement and recognition and sense of value to a large population, very inexpensively helping create and build and reinforce the culture for which the, that particular retailer has always stood by. I think in another case, this time we'll go into the insurance business and industry, again, a long-standing client of some eight years. They've been amongst the top employers to work with in the state that they have been since we put that program in place. Would we, as online rewards, say we're the reason why they became the best employer? That's not true or fair. It's a reflection of the quality of the leadership of that organization in conjunction. But 
they used our tools and we worked with them to design and modify the tools to best fit their needs so they have a program that is credible, highly used. I think it's a 98% participation rate as defined by employees logging in on a monthly basis into the program. So clearly it's having an impact and contributing to having them become a best places to work in their state many years in a row. So they're two examples of, of where there are tangible business outcomes. You're, you're doing some good work from a, a little guy there from Bondi Beach in Australia. Michael, this is fantastic stuff. So if our listeners out there want to get hold of you or learn more about it, uh, where should they find you? What's the, what's the, where's the secret source and uh, where can I find you online or in person? Do they reach out to you? Sure. Thanks for the promo and plug. Yes, the Bondi Beach burn boy, but I've been living in Dallas, Texas for some 20 years now. And uh, you just go to online-rewards.com, online-rewards.com, and you'll see all the information and all the contact points there. And, you know, one of our team will get in touch with you or I'm happy to get on a call. I usually spend some time with each of the clients that are coming on board to the company to share some, some experience and perspective on what we've seen and what we've done. Well, listen, fantastic stuff. Thanks so much for joining us today. To our listeners out there, listen, recognition, we all know that it's a key part of developing a great culture. But again, having the mechanism to actually execute it easily, fairly, and in such a way, and I think Michael gave us an example in one of his business cases, 98% engagement rate. That's certainly something to listen to and something to check out. So again, Michael, thanks very much for joining us. I look forward to seeing you out there on the road and uh, keep doing all that good work. Thanks, Shane. All right, take care. Ciao. So here we have it, some great insights from Michael uh, just now and of course uh, Michelle earlier. Um, so here's my final thoughts uh, before we let you get out of here. Let's talk about your recognition program. Now remember, your recognition program should be one of your best cultural mechanisms that really can direct your start to the importance of your values and how work gets done. Unfortunately, there's still too much emphasis in too many companies on who delivers the most without concern for how those results were obtained. Listen, employees with high sales numbers, customer scores, and the ability to deliver can sometimes do so while destroying the morale and happiness of everyone around them. Yet, when it comes to time to recognition, it doesn't seem to matter. So make sure your recognition program focuses just as much on how something's delivered as much as how much is delivered. Letting your people know that how they act and interact with others is absolutely critical to your organization. Listen, thanks for checking in today, guys. Thanks again, Michael and Michelle, for joining me today. Hey, check out my new book, Culture Hacker. It's out on shelves April 24th. And please follow me on Twitter at underscore Shane Green. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you again next time on Culture Hacker. Cheers. Cheers.